Hi, everyone. Thank you again for being at uh, a new session, uh, Full Armor Apologetics. And today's guest, I'm yeah, so thrilled and excited to, yeah, to have you on here. Uh, the person I have right here in front of me has given, it could be like very mildly said that she has given up a couple of sledgehammers for the Church of Christ. For everyone who has like doubts when they read the Bible, like, is it historical? Where, was it, wasn't it made up? The woman right here in front of me has like some very meaty uh, works given to us, which we will go delve into this one uh, a little bit further. And uh, the particular thing that we are going to address right now are her speciality, specialty, which are undesigned coincidences. Like this is one of her books, Hidden in Plain Views, uh, Undesigned Coincidence in the Gospels and Acts. And the other book that she has is particularly on the Gospel of John. The Eye of the Beholder, the Gospel of John as Historical Reportage. So the thing about us Christians is that when we quote the Bible, we really want to have the certainty right behind it. And the woman right here in front of me has made it her life work, alongside with also her husband, uh, Tim McGrew, um, to give us Christians the fortitude to quote them wholeheartedly. Dr. Lydia McGrew, I'm thanking you so much for being right here with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Vartan. Yeah, what can I say? Like, um, I want to go delve into this one. I'm not going to uh, extrapolate everything out of it, but I do want to mention uh, this one little part. Where was it again? Oh, yeah. So this one is about undesigned coincidence. So I'm going to quote your book for, for a very small section. An undesigned coincidence is a notable connection between two or more accounts or texts that doesn't seem to have been planned by the person or people giving the accounts. Despite their apparent independence, the items fit together like a pieces of puzzle. Hence the pieces right here in front of us. So, Mr. McGrew, so like my first question is uh, why are undesigned coincidences so effective in proving the historicity of the New Testament? So let me let me give a kind of example. This is like would be a modern made up example, but I think it will help in answering that question. Uh, suppose that you have two different people who say that they witnessed a bank robbery. And uh, so you're questioning them and you're trying to decide, you know, did they just make this up or did this bank robbery really happen? And one of them says, you know, this bank robber was ahead of me in line and I looked down and I noticed that his shoe was untied. And then he, he carried out the robbery. And then the other person says, you know, tells his story of the robbery and then says, and when he ran out the door to run away, he, he tripped and he almost fell. And then he recovered himself and he went on and he ran away. So the, and the person who mentions the tripping doesn't mention the shoelace and the person who mentions the shoelace doesn't mention the tripping. So that's a kind of example of an undesigned coincidence because they don't appear to be trying to fit their information together. And so that helps you to have more confidence in both of them and believe them because it, it would make sense that if there was a real bank robbery and they both saw it, then they would remember these things that would actually fit together because tripping could be explained by the untied shoelace. So that's an example. I hope people still have shoelaces nowadays. If everybody has Velcro, nobody's going to understand that example. But um, 
yes, a shoelace is the thing you use to keep your shoe on. Anyway, um, so that's like a modern example. So why are they so effective? Well, first of all, there's what I just alluded to, which is casualness. So that they appear to be casual. Neither one appears to be um, trying to say, hey, look at me. I am telling you the truth because I'm giving you this. They're just saying it as part of the story. And then the other person is just saying it as part of the story. And then you notice as the investigator that they fit together. So, for example, if John mentions that the feeding of the 5,000 took place around Passover time, he just kind of mentions it in passing. And then Mark says they had the people sit down on the green grass, and we know that the grass is green around the time of Passover. Neither one appears to be trying to bring that up to show off or confirm himself. So there's that apparent casualness. Then there's, um, that leads to the fact that it would probably fail if you did it deliberately, you know, it could be overlooked so easily. I only learned, I had known the Bible all my life very well, but only learned about undesigned coincidences, <clears throat> you know, a certain number of years ago, not very long ago. So you could just miss them. And a person who's faking something is not going to be that subtle that it could be missed. And then, you know, what good does it do him, right? So it's not plausible that John would go, ooh, you know, I'll mention that it was Passover and then maybe somebody will go notice this little mention of the green grass over here in Mark and then they'll believe me that, you know, made up, even though I make, I'm making up the story. That, that doesn't make sense. So that's why it's so, and it's so impossible to plan too. You know, Mark could not possibly have known that John was going to come along later and mention the time of year. Mark may not have even known the time of year other than the grass was green, but not that it was around Passover. So um, in these ways, they just do not appear to be planned. And that gives us more confidence because reality fits together and these uh, details fit together. Yeah. So one thing that's very important actually to mention is um, when the claim, when Christians put the claim forward that it's a historical account or reports of Christ, then what we need to keep in mind first off is that when you start reading, like the epistemological lens that you need to use is uh, that you need to keep in mind that there were already thousands of Christians before one letter of the New Testament was written. Like, for instance, in Luke 1, and the Luke made an orderly account for the excellent Theophilus, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So what you need to think of is uh, there's one person, you have like the synoptic gospels, syn, synchron, and optic with eye, the same eye gospels, for instance. So uh, the, the gospels for it are actually eyewitness testimony so in that particular way people should one of the ways should be reading the bible for instance so the yeah the, the example or the allegory that jesus gave just fit, fit fits perfectly like in that way of looking at it and there are plenty of them i would really recommend this book i've read this one uh last two or three weeks uh when coming to this podcast for instance and one thing yeah there were there were one thing that really catch my attention was uh, you really start to understand more what, how the, the writers of the New Testament of how the apostles were thinking. Mm -hmm. So you really see them as human beings, as persons, for instance. Right. Right. And that's a very important th thing to emphasize. It is important because we trust people as people, right? If you have a friend, you trust him because you know him as a person. 
right? And if we just think of these as sort of abstract documents, um, then that may not tell us why we should trust them. But when we start understanding what kind of people these, these men were and that they were truthful, then that gives us a reason to trust them and not to make up all of these elaborate theories that they might have been changing things or falsifying things. We're like, no, that's not that's not what Luke was like. That's not what John was like, you know? Yeah, yeah. It just it, it makes you more fall in love with uh, with the apostles themselves also when you really start to figure out that they were truthful. We, we're going to elaborate more on that particular point. So my next question um, it's it's more of an uh, an objection, like from so many angles, like the, the anti-Christian spirit. It's very prevalent these day and age. Is then they say like uh, uh, Jesus was mouthpiece by the apostles, like Christ, Christ was a historical person, but the apostles actually like made some s- stuff up about him going mm-hmm. along. Mm-hmm. What would be like your um, answer to that objection? So there's many things that I could say. Um, but one of them is that it, we actually see evidence to the contrary in the Gospels. And so I do this in John. Um, and as you know, I've got like a chapter was was Jesus John's mouthpiece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's in there, you know, in that question. Um, so one of the things that the, the Apostle John, the evangelist John does, is that he'll pause in in the middle of reporting what Jesus says, and he'll explain it in his own words. And this is called an aside. Like he'll pause and say, this is, this he said concerning his body, or this he said concerning the spirit, which was to be given, or that kind of thing. Now think, if we think about it, suppose that the other theory, that John thought it was fine to um, kind of put his own ideas into Jesus' mouth and make Jesus say what he thought you know, was the better, you know, the explanation, the fuller explanation of Jesus teaching or whatever. Well, why would he bother to pause then? And, and, you know, like like hit pause on Jesus words, and then come in in his own voice as the narrator and said, he said this, and this is what he meant. It would have been easier to just have Jesus, you know, say, and I'm talking about the spirit, or maybe the make up a scene where the disciples say, what were you talking about, about destroying the temple? And he says, you know, uh, that I'm speaking of my body because I'm going to die. And, you know, that's what I meant by that, right? Like he could make Jesus say it if he thought it was okay to make Jesus say stuff. And instead he, he says it in his own voice. So he's making a scrupulous distinction between Jesus' voice and his own voice. And so that doesn't look like he's using Jesus as his own mouthpiece. It looks like he's trying to make it clear when he's giving his own interpretation. Yeah. So, 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 I, he's, so he's explicating. He's disambiguating. Yeah. Right. And he's separating his explication from what the historical Jesus said, which gives us confidence when he reports what the historical Jesus said, that it's really what the historical Jesus said. Yeah. That's a solid point, actually, coming to think about it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. So he could have he could have done it, but he didn't do it. That's right. that all the more like his uh, integrity of being as truthful as possible just just yeah. amps up more solid right. points. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Are there some Another more examples? Be, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, that Jesus uh, never he he doesn't address the controversies that would have been on their minds, and you notice um, even in Acts we find this controversy about whether the Gentiles uh, have to keep the law of Moses. And whether, when we find in the epistles of Paul, do the Gentiles have to be circumcised? For example, Paul is like writing about that a lot. Uh, do, the, do Gentile believers have to eat kosher? You know, that kind of thing. 
Um, and they're like debating about this. You know, Jesus doesn't even address that. Like the closest he comes is in Mark. He says, uh, you know, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out. That's like really, really indirect. And Mark pauses and says, this he said, declaring all meats clean. And, you know, that's, again, that's like an aside from Mark. Uh, same thing like John. But it's, if so, it's pretty indirect. And uh, we find in the Gnostic so-called gospels, in contrast, Jesus is like talking all this Gnostic stuff. You know, like they're having him, now that's him being their mouthpiece. They're having him address the things they're interested in. You know, the, the so-called disciples, you know, please explain about the aeons and the pluramons, you know, which is this later Gnostic idea. We never find that in the gospels. We find Jesus instead addressing things like, you know, why don't your, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat or whatever? You know, things that are this very contemporary Jewish concern that he would have while the, while the temple was still standing, while the Pharisees are still this very influential sect. Um, and these concerns, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar and all that kind of thing that are, that are the concerns of Jesus' own time, not the concerns of the later church. So I think that's, a, that's another argument. And we can go uh, on and on and on with this type of uh, mm -hmm. subjects, for instance. But I, I have read, uh, read the book of Peter Williams of like, mm -hmm. um, uh, I forgot the title. I have can it right we trust there. the Gospels? Can exactly. we trust the Gospels? Like mm -hmm. that book is just like neat, very small, but so powerful. And uh, he does, he does address like, for instance, things like places, names, uh, oh, yeah. nature, plants. These are like, like undesigned coincidence in and of himself, which you can derive so much, can extrapolate so much data from. But the thing with the other quote unquote gospels are that for instance, I don't know which one it was, that they used the name of Jerusalem once or that they uh, named uh, a certain place like twice or something when it's such a huge yeah. document, for instance. And what, one of my favorites was um, one called the so-called gospel of Mary. Yeah. And it doesn't even tell you which Mary. Williams points this out. And Mary was the number one female name in Palestine at Jesus' time. And we, we know this from like uh, uh, burial ossuaries and uh, documents and inscriptions and stuff. And so in the Gospels, of course, they are always careful to tell you which Mary. If you ever yeah, notice that, yeah, yeah, Mary Magdalene. Yeah, yeah. Mary, uh, the mother of James, the, you know, Mary, the mother of Jesus, blah, 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 right? Um, they're very clear. Because why? Well, because at that time, that's what you would have done. You wouldn't have just said Mary because you, the people would not know which Mary you were talking of. So the gospel authors have all these correct names for the different Marys because that's what they were really known as. It shows their rootedness in the real time and place. But the so-called gospel of Mary doesn't even tell you which Mary because that guy doesn't know that this was such a popular name. So, so there, it's, go, it's there goes the trustworthiness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. Awesome. Uh, I love this type of subjects. So next question. Um, what would you say to the objection, quote unquote, the figure of Jesus has been mythicized by the religious imagination of the early Christians and direct apostles? It's somewhat of an extrapolation of the first question, but... Not not really the same exact question, right? So for one thing, one thing I argue uh, in the eye of the beholder um, is that Jesus is this very 3D character, you know, three-dimensional 
figure. And he's clearly the same figure in all the different gospels, yet in different stories. And so that's very hard to fake. If they are fictionalizing his character and mythologizing his character, you would not expect this in these subtle, subtle little ways. So an example I'm very fond of is uh, where Jesus says um, he heals the man, uh, sorry, excuse me, heals the woman who's bent over. And then the synagogue ruler rebukes the people for coming to be healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus rebukes the synagogue leader. You know, he says, uh, you will unloose an uh, animal to take him to water on the Sabbath. Should I not have unloosed this daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound 18 years? Um, so unloose and unloose. So he's using this yeah. word. He's carrying this word over, right? And then you go over to John and uh, they're angry at him for healing a lame man on the Sabbath. And when he's talking about that, he says, you will circumcise a man on the Sabbath that the law be not broken. But when I made a whole man whole on the Sabbath, then you hate me. So to circumcise, to cut off, to make a man whole, to put a man together. Okay, so he's addressing a similar topic, which is healing on the Sabbath, but it's a completely different story. And it's the mind of the same man. And you can tell that so clearly because of the way he likes to yeah. use words. And then I even found a, a third instance of that after I wrote the book, like just a week or two ago, when he's uh, in Matthew, you tithe dill and cumin. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin, and you neglect the weightier matters of the law. <laughs> so mint and dill and cumin are little tiny like seeds and they're like counting them to make sure they tithe them or they're using some tiny little scale to find out what's a tenth you know of my of my dill seed or whatever mm -hmm. and they're neglecting the weightier matters which are he says justice and uh, faithfulness and mercy. So weight, weight versus light, heavy versus light. And so it's the, clearly the same man addressing the same topic, but in completely different stories and completely different ways. That's impossible to fake. I mean, practically yeah. speaking, that's impossible to fake. And yet the gospel authors, they, they do that all the time. They've also got this personality of Jesus. He's cryptic. So he says things that are hard to understand. He's difficult. All right, I think he must have been kind of a frustrating person. You know, sometimes you would ask him a question and he'd give you this cryptic answer. Um, he embarrasses the disciples. He calls Peter Satan. Okay, he refers to the apostle Peter as Satan. I don't think that's something Peter would have made up. He's lonely. He says, you know, watch with me. Watch with me. My soul is troubled. Watch and pray. So he shows vulnerability. He's human. Uh, that's not something you're going to put into, a, I think, a mythologized Jesus. He's physical. He's thirsty. He cries. And yet at the same time, he claims to be God. All of these paradoxes of the character of Jesus. I think if, if somebody oh. can believe that that is fake across those Gospels, the, he can believe anything. Right? The, hair, the hairs on my neck just stood up. It just, um, yeah, it, it just did something. Yeah, but, but, but it, it doesn't go to the point that Christ was an itinerant preacher. So it wasn't like that he like gave a, gave a parable or said something. It was like, guys, they would sit. I hope you remembered correctly. Write it down. <laughs> it, it wasn't like that. So he, he did like in his, what would it be like three years, three and a half years, three years, two months ministry, for instance, 
he did address the same oh, yeah. idiosyncratic ways of, of preaching and, and, and having his ministry, for instance. And we see that all the way throughout. And right. one of the things, for instance, you addressed was the loosening and binding. Like in Luke 18, 9 to 14, for instance, you have like the parable of uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Like the Pharisee is like, I'm following the law and uh, da, 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 da. And the tax collector was like, I am a sinner, but I do have faith in, 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 in my God for us. And Christ says, the last one, he will see, uh, he will, he will see the kingdom he of heaven. He went home to his uh, house justified. Correct. Yeah. So yeah, there yeah. he emphasizes again, like great the law and all the type of stuff. What matters for me is the heart. A domain that only can be seen by him and as God himself, for instance. And that's mm-hmm. something that's just like all the way throughout the New Testament, which is like, mm-hmm. so when people say like, yeah, it's like mythicized or like uh, put more on, you can really like address like uh, his cash characteristics and he, mm-hmm. also like his human side, which is like mm-hmm. very fascinating. And Christ being the God man, the theanthropos, like the mm-hmm. paradox of like, God not being changed, but also when he grew up, up until like 12 years old, for instance, these are things that just people wrestle with, but at the same time, it just does make sense, for instance. And and not possible to invent. And you would never find a Gnostic or a Docetist inventing any of these things. We kind of know what some of those early heresies were. And we know that this is not the Jesus that they would have invented, you know? Um, And it's not even necessarily the Jesus that the orthodox would have invented to to counter them so for example there are things like where jesus says no man knows the day or the hour uh not the angels in heaven nor the sun and it's like that's kind of a inconvenient verse you know so if you're out there and you're trying to go no jesus is god you're not going to invent that saying that's correct And so for all the more reason to believe that it really was spoken by the historical jesus and that they're just putting down you know what they remember that he told and so peter that's in the gospel of mark and that uh you know peter remembered that that's what jesus said and mark writes it down you know it's convenient mm-hmm. or not yeah so. the, the criterion of embarrassment right right like, like why would it why would you make that up like for right, yeah right. so many pastors or even uh galatians 2 like the 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 disconvenience between Paul and Peter, for instance, why would Paul write that down, for instance? But it does have a certain trustworthiness. Like I am, I when when Christ was risen from the dead, for instance, I I collected all the women and I kept them safe. For instance, no, they didn't. You ran away. <laughs> right. All, all this type right. of stuff. Yeah. Right. This would be a good time for a break. Sure. Yeah. So my next question. Uh, which, which is a very uh, broad one, a very general one. But what are your thoughts about biblical inerrancy? Okay, so I have an inerrancy series on my YouTube channel. Link in the uh, description. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you get hold also of the third book that I wrote, The Mirror or the Mask, chapter four addresses biblical inerrancy. I don't think there's anything uh, in chapter four that isn't in the in, in the video playlist, but some people prefer to read rather than watching, etc. You know, it's faster, whichever medium you want to get that in. But uh, so to be open about this, I do not uh, consider myself an inerrantist. Um, so 
I, I am not an irritist and I'm, I am open to the possibility and I even think plausibility that there are places, even in the gospels where there are some, uh, some minor errors. And um, then I also have some problems concerning the Old Testament and the slaughter of the Canaanite children. And that comes up in my uh, video series that I did as well. Um, but my position on the gospels and their reliability is what I would call very inerrancy friendly. And I think this, uh, it, it's interesting, some really, really strong inerrantists have endorsed my work. Uh, Randy Leedy, um, John Warwick Montgomery, J.P. Moreland, Doug Bookman, uh, you know, some of these guys who are just unabashed inerrantists of the, you know, old school. And uh, in fact, Randy Leedy uh, said, I think it was Leedy, said he used to be a professor at Bob Jones. And he said something like, uh, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to put a little qualifier in my uh, endorsement of the eye of the beholder that it's unfortunate that you're not an inerratist. And I was like, that's fine. Like he said that to my publisher. And if you read, it's, it's a really good, strong endorsement. And so I'm like, no, that's, that's better. That's good. Because that shows that inerratists, they know, like I haven't hidden anything from them, and yet they see my work as really supporting uh, what they are doing and what they want to do. And so to me, the the more important distinction, in my opinion, that between an inerratist and a non-inerratist is between, or someone who, let's just say, calls himself an inerratist, we'll put it that way, and someone who doesn't call himself an inerratist, is between the people who take a robustly historical view of the Gospels and those who attempt to dehistoricize it in any respect at all to say that the Gospel authors, you know, deliberately changed the facts. And unfortunately, what we have kind of floating around nowadays is a view in evangelical Christianity uh, in the United States and also somewhat in, I would say, Canada. I don't know if it's cropped up in Holland yet, but where people will take the name of inerrancy, but they've actually changed the meaning of that. So they say, well, I'm an inerratist, but I think John moved the temple cleansing, for example, or I think John, uh, well, they won't use the word invented because that might upset people, but uh, crafted or some word like that. The scene where Jesus uh, breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Ghost, because that was uh, his way of alluding to Pentecost or whatever, you know, they all these things um, that are, if we speak forthrightly, inventions that are made up and uh and yet they'll say well i'm an inerratist you know like that's not what inerrancy used to mean right so i think in some ways those inerratists who've endorsed my work have appreciated my forthrightness that i'm retaining their definition of inerrancy instead of changing the meaning of the word and then i'm <laughs> saying well by that definition i'm not an inerratist you know so, so what is their definition of biblical inerrancy But if, if, if someone hears the word biblical inerrancy, what could they derive from it? Well, we've got the Chicago statement out there, and that's pretty long, you know, uh, Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy. And then subsequently, uh, they published the Chicago statement on biblical hermeneutics. And I think those are to really be read together. And they intended that in order to sort of fend off some of these redefinitions that I'm talking about, like already in, uh, I think it was 1978, they could kind of see that coming down, down the pike. So, um, Obviously, I mean, you know, I'm going to restate the whole thing. I don't have it memorized, but, uh, you know, that, that, that the Gospels and all of the um, books of the Bible are inerrant 
it, without error in that which they affirm to be true in the original manuscripts. And then with the added idea that no, you can't weasel out of affirmed to be true if a book presents itself as historical and it presents the um, something it's saying as historical and it appears like it's stating it as historical, then if it's not historical, then you're not, an, if you think it's not historical, you're not an inerrantist, you know? So for example, if when John presents the temple cleansing as occurring early in Jesus' ministry, then if you don't think that happened, you're not an inerrantist. You can't just say, um, well, I don't think he's really affirming that because it was a literary device and people at the time were allowed to change things and therefore it's not really affirmed. So see, I still think it's true in everything that it affirms. You know, that that's a, a, trying to get around it. And that's why they wrote the statement on biblical hermeneutics as a companion to the statement on biblical inerrancy that when something presents itself as historical, it then that's to be taken to be what it's affirming. So that's kind of, that's my understanding of inerrancy. And so then by that standard, then, you know, if I think, I think, for example, that John may have made a mistake about the day when Jesus was anointed in Passion Week. And so if I think he might've made a mistake about that, then I'm not an inerrantist, but I'm being open and honest about that. And then it would be an honest mistake. It's not John saying, oh yeah, you know, I knew this happened on Wednesday, but I'm going to make it happen on Saturday because that would make my story flow smoother. And he, I don't think they ever did that. Like ever, ever, ever. I don't think they ever deliberately changed it. And so to me, that's where the, um, that's where the real crucial distinction is, is between people who think that, especially in the Gospels, that the Gospel authors never deliberately changed a fact and the people who think he sometimes did, whatever label uh, you put on that. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So in other words, if John got it wrong about what day, it was not on purpose. It was because Jesus was going out to Bethany every evening. And I'm just... I'm carrying out this example because it's because I brought it up. Um, you know, it's like if you were doing the same thing every evening, like suppose you had a um, conference in Amsterdam and then you were staying at a hotel and I don't know the, the, the suburbs of Amsterdam, but you're staying at a hotel in an outlying town. And like every night you you left the conference and you went out to your hotel and you ate out there and you slept out there and then you came back the next morning, continue the conference, right? And let's say it's years later and someone's writing the account who was with you at that time, he might switch a couple of days because you went out and you had a similar dinner with similar people yeah. on multiple occasions um, in that suburb of Amsterdam uh, and it just was similar and he just switched it. It's like a really honest mistake. Doesn't that actually make the case even better for the fact that they were uh, in, in, integrate, that they were trying to be as accurate as possible, but of course they are human beings, of course, and they're not infallible in everything they write or do, for instance. So it doesn't negate anything. It doesn't say anything that's actually like throws everything into danger. Right. Well, I think we, we have a concept. The reason that's, and that's what I talk about in chapter four, and I talk about it in, um, in my series as well. So we have a concept of people who are 
very reliable, but not infallible. And we know people who are very reliable, but not infallible. My husband is very reliable, but not infallible. I'm very reliable, but not infallible, right? You know people like that. And so we know that if that person slips on something of this kind, that doesn't throw everything into, into danger, doesn't throw everything into question, because we know about kind of what that person is going to make a mistake about and what he's not going to make a mistake about right? We have a pretty, pretty solid concept of that. But if you were in a court and a uh, witness, you know, was confronted with a contradiction between his testimony and another person, and he said, oh, yeah, you know what? I knew that wasn't true. I changed it on purpose to make a better story. Like that really, uh, to use a cancer metaphor, that metastasizes. That spreads to the rest of his testimony incredibly yeah. fast because we don't know what he's going to think made a better story in the rest of his testimony then we don't have that same uh very limited concept that we do of of how many and what kind of mistakes he's going to make as we have for a reliable but fallible witness yeah that that's really does make sense in the fact that uh when they when you really see uh dishonesty you, then all of a sudden, like all the trust, like like a piece of glass, for instance, when you shatter it, like you can put it all together, but isn't what it was in before. But and then it's the question, like, did you do it on purpose or not? And the main thing that we can drive out of it is actually that's not. So like, it doesn't actually throw, uh, yeah, as they call it in Dutch, a wood in it, eight, when uh, things are becoming bad. So it doesn't, is the fact. Um, then I have the next question, which, which uh, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about it. Um, what do we learn about the idiosyncrasies and character characteristics of the writers of the New Testament? So like um, their writing style or uh, their, their character, or like we know, for instance, Matthew was aimed towards the Jews. Mark was for, about brevity and conciseness. Luke was about... <laughs> Uh, uh, punctuality and an orderly account and John was about evangelizing so we do know that they have an aim in mind uh, what can you can you elaborate more on that particular point so they are all individuals and that's absolutely true but we also learn to trust them and you you see that when you read hidden in plain view I talk about it. actually I talk about it in all my books the way that we get to know them I really felt that when I wrote the eye of the beholder I got to know the gospel of John and then the and then the evangelist, John, you know, and I, I kind of said to my husband ahead of time, I suppose I can't exactly dedicate the book to John, the evangelist. So I, I didn't, I dedicated it to some other people, but, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not Roman Catholic, so I don't, I don't address petitions to saints, but I really felt that in a sense, I was defending John as a person in that I had come to know him in a sense as a person and was defending him as a person. And so um, we, we come to trust them as people and as, as witnesses and investigators and that kind of thing. Luke with his saying he had investigated all these things from the beginning and that kind of thing. Um, Matthew, you know, sure, Matthew puts religious significance on the fact that Jesus went to Egypt, out of Egypt have I called my son. And yes, that is a kind of a weird interpretation of that Old Testament passage. But Matthew would not have put that religious significance on it if it didn't, if he didn't think it happened. Like it's not going to fulfill the prophecy if it didn't happen. It only can fulfill the prophecy if it really happened. So the skeptics who say, oh, Matthew made this up as a midrash or you know, something like that, or even unfortunately some Christians who say that, Robert Gundry said that, um, as a Christian uh, a New Testament scholar. So 
they don't understand Matthew. You know, because if you understand Matthew, you know that he's not going to think that this fulfilled what was spoken unless it really occurred, because then then it didn't fulfill it, you know. So you so see in all they, their differences, they've got that fundamental truthfulness. One of the great things about John that I really love is his simultaneous theological interest and his empirical interest. So I think we don't understand how a person can be very attuned to the other world, to God and spiritual matters, and get very attuned to the physical world. I think we have a false dichotomy there that those are incompatible. John is both. He is both. He's so observant, you know, like, he'll, you know, so he's got that big theological, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, right? And yet, when Judas is given the sap, and he goes out, John says, and it was night. And as this uh, one scholar, Blakelock, puts it, this oblong of darkness stamped itself forever on one mind, the mind of the, the beloved disciple, and it was night. And so he notices these, these visual details, oral details, tangible details. And Jesus arose and he put aside his outer garment and he girded himself with a, uh, with a towel and he took a basin and he began to wash their feet. Like every motion and he remembers it because he saw it. John, the man who saw. That's why I have an eye on the front cover, you know. Yeah. So Such a beautiful cover. It just has to be. Guys, if you're not going to buy the book for the content, which you should, this cover <laughs> alone is also like amazing too. It's it's a collector's item, hundred uh, percent. All Timothy, the other books. Tim Timothy Jones is the painter. He's a Roman Catholic painter, and I I bought the original of the painting, and then he gave us the rights to the image for for the book. He called the painting "Witness," and he it was commissioned for this book. Yeah, and awesome! So, an entire artwork uh, dedicated to uh, yep. a piece of work. Yep dedicated for it for that so that's john um and and yet i could say more i could say more about luke with his cosmopolitan you know in the in the 15th year of the reign of tiberius caesar like he's he's attuned to the wider roman world right and he brings that in as evidence of the historical tie down of his uh, of his book um mark with his brevity and yet he's got these little details jesus was asleep in the boat on a pillow <laughs> he wasn't just asleep <laughs> on a pillow Okay, you know, or <laughs> that's only in Mark, you know, so somehow he manages to be so brief and yet he, he doesn't, he has all these details, you know, or like they went and they found the colt that he was going to ride on outside in the door by the street, <laughs> exactly where the colt was, you know, um, and then Matthew with his little bits that he adds, like Herod was speaking to his servants, how does, how does Matthew know that, you know, and, and I've got an undesigned coincidence about that. So he does not afraid to add stuff. I think he's using Mark, but he's not afraid to add things to Mark as well. So every one of them is different. And yet they've got that fundamental truthfulness and interest in the reality, the historical reality. Yeah. And I do want to, one of my personal heroes, what do you think about Paul? What do you, what can you drive from his characters of how he writes and how he, um, which is this, which this book is like Paul and Jesus of James T. Tabor, for instance, but that, it's just about Paul. Yeah, yeah, question. yeah. So I talk about the character of Paul in, uh, I have a little digression in Hidden yeah. in Plain View yeah. about the, um, the address to the elders of Ephesus. 
okay, in, uh, I don't remember the chapter of Acts that that's in, but where he, he thinks he's never going to see them again, you may remember, and so he asks them to meet him, he's on his way to Jerusalem, everybody's just trying to talk him out of going to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested if you go to Jerusalem, yeah. you're going to die, you're going to be persecuted, and like the Holy Spirit even uh, sends him a, a, a a warning that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is telling him not to go, but just so he knows what he's getting himself into, right? You know, that uh, he's going to be bound, you know, and the uh, prophet comes and binds himself with his belt. And so Paul is addressing the elders of Ephesus and he has them all weeping by the end. I mean, that guy was a great, great rhetorician. And then you connect this with Paul in the epistles and he's trying to get like Philemon to, uh, to, to release Onesimus from his slavery. And he says, not to mention, you know, that you owe me your own life also. You know, it's like he's, 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 I don't want to say manipulative, but he knows how to work people's emotions, you know? And now I know that I shall never see you again. I don't think, I don't think God told him he would never see them again. In fact, I think he did see them again, but he believed he would never see them again. Um, and so, you know, and, and remember my life because wolves are going to come into the church. Well, you know, what's that like? He says in the epistles, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Right. So remember how I have been among you. So we've got that consistency and people talk about, you know, the Lucan Paul. I'm sorry, the Lucan Paul is just as Paul. You know, it's, just, it's the same Paul. Yeah. Yeah, I have I have like, yeah, I can go on to entire rants of how much I love the Apostle Paul, for instance. And you have like, for instance, another book of John Piper. Like 30 reasons why I love the Apostle Paul. Like, oh, this I like also, that title. That's a great title. Yeah. It does trigger your, uh, like, you know, it's a subjective opinion of someone. But when you right. go through it, you really, one of the things that really just caught my attention were how Paul has, like, a mind for rhetoric, but it also has a heart for love. And mm, it's you, true. Yeah. But then you come to know, like, um, when Paul was prosecuting, when Paul was anti-Christian, as it possibly could get that he was a Jew of the Jews. Like Saul, like it's not Saul, but Paul, but Saul. Yeah. But then you really come to understand somewhat, it's like a very blasphemous thing to say, to say, but you really come to understand why Christ has chosen him. Oh, you really, yeah. yeah. So there are so many resources. Yeah, because he quotes 183 times the Old Testament, like the Old Testament is like living in him as a figure of speech. Uh, so zealous as, it, as you possibly can get. Uh, like 180 degrees for him and right? that's something which and he always knows what people needs to be need to be doing have you, have you ever noticed that for all of his friends and his his children in the faith it's like paul loves them and he has a wonderful plan for their life you know he's yeah. he's in a sense he's like a he's in a sense like a controlling person and yet god has taken that that desire to lead and has turned it into something that is so so necessary for the church yeah what you really come to notice when you Paul, for instance, we have like in Colossians, there was this problem where of the um, of the Gnostics, for instance, they thought that Christ wasn't fully God and matter was bad. And like Paul was wrote into, no, Christ is fully human, fully divine. For instance, mm -hmm. we have Galatians where Judaizers were, no, you don't need to mm -hmm. be circumcised or Corinthians where they were so prideful and, and corporeal, for instance. But to the Romans, for instance, he mentions in the beginning that he was very proud of them, like in the Ecclesia, like in the collective church, for instance, which he was a very proponent leader of them. They were so 
uh, mature in their faith that he could write an entire uh, the book of Romans, for instance, where you can really go into depth with them because he really sensed like, okay, these people, they are up to date. These people, they are not mature. They, they you really see the polemical and apologetical way of how Paul is orchestrating everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the, the, the inner drive of uh, somewhat of a, of a shepherd as, as a figure of speech, he does that so well. And I'm, Really grateful for the for the Lord that he chosen him and Christ is our God, but Paul is my hero. <laughs> Stevie said. There you go. Just, there you go. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let me see. Um, my next question: In what sense is John complementing the synoptics as well as being different from the synoptics? So I think that complementing and being different go together perfectly. You kind of have to be different in order to complement them. So um, for one thing, I think John had the synoptics. That, that's not necessarily shared by all scholars, but I think he's the last gospel and I think he, he had the synoptics available to him. And I think he looked at them and um, Eusebius now, you know, that's hundreds of years later, but the church historian said that his sources indicated that John wrote to include, for example, the early ministry of Jesus, uh, the Judean ministry after the um, baptism by John the Baptist before he went to the Galilean ministry because that had not been covered. And I think that principle is wider than just the early ministry. I think we find that in other stories like uh, the raising of Lazarus, for example, or the healing of the man born blind, um, all of these, the I, I am sayings and so forth that the other gospels had not covered. And so instead of telling the same parables over again that they had already covered uh, or the same stories that they had already told, he told stories they had not already told. And I think he did that uh, deliberately. I think that was deliberate. Then the other thing is that this allows John to participate in a lot of undesigned coincidences, which is really cool. So um, I already mentioned the one about the time of the Passover, but it even happens between different stories. So for example, in the synoptics, we have the healing of the blind Bartimaeus in Jericho and his companion, because Matthew says there were two, but I'm just going to talk for the moment. I'll just speak of Bartimaeus. He stands for both of them. Um, So they hear this noise and the crowd and they ask what's happening. And the people say that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And immediately they start crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. You know, Jesus have mercy. Okay, when you read the synoptics, has any miracles been reported down there near Jericho? Answer, no. Geographically, the only miracles recorded in the synoptics prior to that miracle are to, in the north. Uh, most of them in Galilee, and that's several days walk, somewhere where Bartimaeus probably would not have gone. So in Galilee or uh, in Luke, we've got the healing of 10 lepers in probably the Valley of the Jezreel, but that's still quite a ways north. Um, so how did Bartimaeus and his companion immediately upon hearing Jesus' name know that he could heal the blind and that he could heal them? And I think a good answer is the miracles that he had done down in the Jerusalem and Bethany area, but those are reported only in John. And in particular, the healing of the man born blind reported in John 9. It, w- it was made a big deal. People were talking about it. Uh, that he healed one who had been born blind. So if they had heard of that, then that explains 
in the synoptics why when he's passing by and they hear it's Jesus of Nazareth, they're like, oh my goodness, he can heal us. And there are several others like that where John explains that something in the synoptics, but not with any apparent intention to do so. And he compliments them in that way because he's telling other stories. And of course, because reality fits together. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I really came to think when people want to uh, discredit the New Testament, for instance, say like, yeah, first came Mark and there's, there's like this inclining Christology, for instance. Yeah. So there's like, yeah, John, he just like blew everything up. Uh, Bart Ehrman, for instance, misquoting Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. But it does make sense. Left, of course, I would, this is my subjective opinion in this case. I do understand the fact that John already has like the, the synoptics that came before him. And uh, at that particular moment, when he started writing, Paul was already uh, deceased in Rome. Uh, things were already happening. Uh, his epistles towards uh, the anti-Christian people in, in the region, for instance. So he did have uh, this eagle view as being like one of the, if not the last apostle, for instance. He had like this view of, okay, my account, when he has like the moment in order to write everything down, he also says in uh, John 20, 30 to 31, and also in the later verses, that it would take so much ink and paper in order to write right. down everything he has done. So this is just as good as a selection. Concise. Yeah, this is a selection of what he has. And, uh, but yeah, John is, of course, not to discredit the, the synoptics, for instance, but John does have. Uh, some things that the others do doesn't have, but the, if, but once the objection that other people, for instance, gay, like why didn't John be was the same as the synoptics? But then the question is, is that a criterion to have like everything needs to be the same? So not at all. We don't go, want go, that. We don't want it. Go back from this is what I said. The New Testament is a collection of eyewitness testimonies. So if everyone would have said the same, then the right. truthfulness of it wouldn't be true. Like we have right. like. Uh, someone who of the, the Titanic in 1980, for instance, one person said like he saw the the whole entire boat slip down in its hold to and uh, sink it to the bottom. Another one said it broke in half and then it sank to the bottom. Right. Two right. different eyewitnesses. We know when we go looking back at these where this was broken in half and then sink, but it doesn't necessarily say like that one was more truthful than the other. And that's the way right. we need to look right. at it. Right. It, it, I, I agree. It's it's a kind of a uh, no-win situation with certain skeptics, because if it's really similar, they'll go, oh, it's dependent. You know, one of them is getting it from the other one. Right. So if but if it's not the same, then they say, well, why is it not the same? And I think a lot of this springs from the idea that the gospel authors are um trying to address certain questions that they aren't always trying to address. So with the Christology, for example, I don't think we have reason to believe that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or any of them said to himself, what is the strongest thing Jesus ever said to support his deity? I want to find that strongest thing, you know, hey, Peter, you know, Mark's talking to Peter. What was the strongest thing that Yeshua ever said to show that he was God? And Peter goes, hmm, hmm, hmm. Oh, yeah, that time in Jerusalem when he said before Abraham was, I am. Let me tell you that story. And then Mark would have written it down, right? We don't know that they asked that question or that they, that they thought of it that way. They told the stories that came to them, that occurred to them. And I think we need to get a concept of the, what I call the randomness of saliency. Saliency is what, what jumps out at you, what's what you think to mention, what you think to tell. We don't have... 
you know, ESP to know like, why didn't they tell about Jesus saying before Abraham was I am? They just didn't. And uh, Bart Ehrman will really bully people with this. Surely, surely they would have told about it if it was real. I do not acknowledge that surely. You know, that the, the, the silence, it's a pure argument from silence, the silence of the synaptics is right. somehow an argument yeah. that it was it's, not historical when told in John. That, that is a sledgehammer of an argument. It's an argument from silence. Surely, like you see the, the upcoming Christologist, surely. No, 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 no. How do you know for a fact? So that's a solid one, actually. When people are trying to quote Ehrman, like, you know. They get, they get I think they get intimidated. Ehrman is intimidating. I mean, he comes across as intimidating. And uh, it was interesting, if you watch the video, you mentioned uh, Peter J. Williams. He did a uh, unbelievable show, and the unbelievable show, he did a debate with Ehrman. And he's British, and so, you know, I think Americans sometimes don't appreciate the British because they're understated. But I think if you watch that, what you see is that Peter is never intimidated by Bart. You know, he's just, he's, he's confident. And so he's got that wonderful British calm, you know, but he doesn't give an inch. And he's got a lot of, I think, a lot of common sense there that he manifests. I don't know if I should say it, but I'm still going to say it just for, for the sake of it. Like, if I recall correctly, like one and a half months ago, I did invite Bart Ehrman for a podcast session. Just, 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 just to swing at it, just uh, ask and thou shall receive Christ said. So, and that's a system that never fails. And then he responded back. He's like, very, thank you for your invitation, but I would like to have like $1,000 for one hour of session. So yeah, I I, I don't want to slander him because he, he he being a scholar, there's no bad thing for him asking money about it, but it did come to mind. Like, wait a minute. He made a lot of money uh, writing books discrediting Christ. Uh, not, not to mention, he also misquoted himself. He changed his mind on so many things, for instance. Uh, people really selectively pick his words. He is a textual scholar, which he does terrifically. I really do agree with a lot of contextual stuff. He also is anti-Jesus mythers, which I quote him for. But I do see in him... Uh, this thing like I need to show, like uh, the Bible doesn't teach purgatory or the Bible doesn't teach this. Wait a minute. You're a textual critic. Stay your lane. It's, I really do think that he is somewhat overrated. I don't know. Well, if and and uh, even in the textual area, you want to be careful because I'll give you an example. He says uh, that in Luke, if I have this correctly, um, Jesus becomes the son of God at his baptism. He claims that this is what Luke, yeah, right, I know, right? Oh, what? And he bases this on, and he'll quote, um, you are my beloved son, this day have I begotten you. And he says that's in Luke. And I'll never forget when Tim came and like, I forget if he read it to me or told me that it was in Aramon, just like, you know, Aramon says this. And I said, that's not in Luke. So I pull out, I, you know, I pull out my NASB or whatever, and I read it. And it's just like, you are my beloved son. It doesn't say, this day have I begotten you. Turns out that's from a different text family that is a, let's just say questionable. And I don't remember the name of it right now. I believe it's been called the Adams family of the text families. You know, it's like <laughs> ugly monster text, you know. And Bart will use that text family when desired to make a point, like in this case without telling the audience when he says, you know, 
in Luke, it says, you are my son, this day have I begotten you, that that's only in this one kind of questionable text family. So even in that textual scholarship area, he does some things that I, I don't consider legitimate. So. Yeah, that's that's a solid argument because and I, I did a, a session with uh, James E. Snap, almost Dr. James E. Snap. I love that man. He, I have a, done a session with him for the Mark 16, 9 to 20 and the Pericope Adultery, for instance. I have like a four hour session and we really go into depth of all the different codexes and these type of stuff. And he is such a loving, kind-hearted man. But at the moment, we start talking about uh, Daniel B. Wallace or Bruce Metzger, or when they say like, yeah, we don't know if the Pericope Adultery was in, mm -hmm. in there. You really see like he gets angered because oh, he, he has done the homework. But when these popular scholars with all their popular books, for instance, they didn't they do their homework. Not to mention the fact that so many people do rely on these verses and these texts. And that he, he has really shown uh, that particularly these two parts in the Bible are the original ones. Just really? Oh, that's, I haven't read his arguments. That's very interesting. My, my position on the Pericopi Adulteri has been that um, it's historical, but may not have been originally in John. In other words, that it happened, but it may have been uh, something that John told verbally because the it, the Greek is somewhat different and so forth. In other words, it may not have originally been in the text of John, but that it really happened. So it's an interesting case where uh, being in the autographer and being historical don't even have to necessarily come together. But yeah. that's a different issue. That's a different, so, but, but, but point being, these yeah. quote unquote scholars, uh, yeah. Like uh, with all the PhDs, you can you somewhat have to be careful. And, you have to be very careful with them. And examine not... things for yourself. That's the other, the moral I would draw there too, is not to be bullied by credentials. And that's very important. You, you very... know, which, you know, which one I, uh, which verse I always uh, appeal to Luke 21, 15 and 16, when Christ says, do not think about what you're going to say, trust mm. that I will give you wisdom and you may be able to refute every argument. And that's the, the, the level of trust that we need to have. And I also think that Peter Williams had that same moment when like this intimidating Bart Ehrman and all these type of stuff, mm -hmm. like, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> no, you're not bothering me. This would be a good time for another break. Sure. So my next question is, why did God come in an age where there were no printing presses or cameras? So that's a fascinating one. Like nobody's ever asked me that question before. I was thinking about it. So we're kind of doing alternative history, right? So just to start with, uh, would there be printing presses or cameras if God had not come? You know, like Christianity is very tightly bound up with the history of the world and the development of the scientific age, technology, uh, the United, you know, discovery of the new world, all of these things, okay? Like all of those people were, were Christians and we don't know to what extent their Christianity was bound up with what they actually did. So there may never have been printing presses had Christianity not uh, happened, you know, because Christians were people of the book, people of the word, and that was important to them. So there's all of that. Um, and then I also think it's very clear that God's intention was to send his son when the Jewish people were still a people before Jerusalem was destroyed and when the sacrificial system was still in place. Um, and then Jesus came as the fulfillment of that sacrificial wow. system. 
And uh, of course, it wasn't that much longer that they rebelled decisively against the Romans and, and Jerusalem was destroyed and the sacrificial system was never again established. Um, and that's all an interesting history of what happened there. But uh, so I think that was part of God's intention. Another thing is that I think God intended to interact with certain people who didn't live later on, you know, the Apostle Paul being an example, you know, and, and, and so he wanted Paul to be his apostle, you know, and, and if Christianity, if Jesus hadn't come and lived and died and risen again, then, you know, Paul presumably would have just been a Jew and lived and died a Jew. And that would have been the end of that, you know, so uh, or, or John or any of Peter or any of the disciples um, that he had certain, you know, God always deals with us as individuals. And he had certain individuals he wanted to deal with and use in a certain particular way who lived at that time. So that's that's part of it. Um, the other thing is, you know, we're just guessing. But there also were fewer resources for fraud, if we think about it. In our own time, we have uh, so-called magicians who can, you know, we've got Photoshop, we've got everything, right? Where we can fake miracles so much more easily. In fact, sometimes people just fake things, you know, for fun, right? And they're not really trying to deceive anybody and they'll say, you know, this is how I did it or whatever. Um, all of that was missing at the time. You know, you're not going to, uh, look like you're sawing a person in half or whatever when you're not really sawing a person in half. You, you don't have those resources. Um, also, the context of persecution was a good one. Now, we got plenty of, per plenty of religious persecution today, um, but certainly in the, the developed West, right now at least, we're not crucifying anybody for being a Christian. It may still happen. It may still, we may still get there. But right now we're not in, uh, in the Western countries. So people will make these analogies. Oh, people say they saw Elvis alive after he died. How is that not like Christianity? And I'll, I bring this up again and again when people bring up non-Christian miracles. Where's the context of persecution? Where's the context of persecution? Uh, yeah. It is a mm. pattern from, from skeptics to, uh, you know, modernist liberal scholars like uh, Dale Allison is a good example, who makes these comparisons to, you know, rainbow body claims in uh, Buddhism that, uh, you know, they'll claim, oh, yeah, you know, my father was a guru and he died and we went in there seven days after he died and his body was gone. It turned into a rainbow. And it's like nobody is getting stoned for claiming that their father's body turned into a rainbow. OK, it's just it's not happening. Um, and so that context of persecution, it was in a sense ideal. I mean, it was no fun, you know, for the people persecuted, but it was ideal for evidential purposes that the, the, the gospel authors and the disciples, the apostles, they knew they could die. And some of them did die for what they were saying. And they said it anyway. And that removes their interest in lying when we look back to evaluate their testimony. So like when people say, Oh, history is written for dope by those who are were the victors, for instance. So uh, that was all written down. But like, okay, wait a minute. This is this is an argument uh, from Frank Turek. For like, okay, Christ gave it to Frank Turek, but this I recall him saying this. Like one of the motivations for human beings, like in corporeal human beings, money, fame, and sex, for instance. Yeah, yeah. N none of the apostles get got any of those, as as least for as we can 
recall or can and the skeptics will point to them bringing you know bringing the uh selling their land and bringing the money to the apostles they'll go oh look you know money you know but uh i also tend to think that the death of ananias and sapphira in that context is pretty striking because if you misused that money or you lied about it you know you know, they, they, they believed you would die, you know, that they, they were just the stewards of that money to use. And I don't think we have any evidence that Peter got rich off of this. You know, they can point to that verse if they like, but actually what we find is Peter being beaten, being, uh, you know, chased, you know, going, it says he went away to a certain place, you know, after he'd been imprisoned, we don't even know where he went, he had to kind of kind of go underground. Um, and eventually, and I think this is a pretty solid tradition being crucified. Yeah. So, um, like reversed, in Rome, supposedly right? upside down, says the story. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that's not a guy who's doing this for money. No. It really is not. Uh, up, like up until like the fourth century, like when the Roman Empire like adopted Christianity as their religion, for instance, like the Roman Empire had their Roman way of doing things. But up until mm -hmm. that, that time, persecution was only, yeah, to say like uh, Christianity was was established by the sword or that type of stuff. That's nonsense. Absolutely not. Absolutely it wasn't. Nonsense. Well, and especially because they would not except the idea that they were just a brand of Judaism. As long as the Romans believed that, oh, yeah, it's just like some Jews arguing with some other Jews, you know, then it was okay. But when, to the extent that they were like, no, you know, we're teaching that Jesus was God. And then the Jews are like, they're not, they're not with us. We're not with them, you know, then they weren't protected anymore because Judaism was a protected religion. You know, now that Romans somewhat persecuted, I mean, what was it, Claudius who kicked all the Jews out of Rome? You could call that a pogrom of sorts. But I think they kept, probably kept their property and they were actually allowed to come back after that uh, under the next emperor, emperor, I think. In fact, I think Aquila and Priscilla might have been two of those. But, um, but it was not the kind of persecution leveled against Christianity. Why? Because Christianity didn't fit into any of the categories. So it didn't fit under the protection, the exception made for Judaism. But at the same time, they would not uh, sacrifice a pinch of uh, incense to the, to the emperor and call him the divine emperor so they wouldn't allow themselves to just be added on like if they had just said jesus is a god and the emperor is also a god then they would have left them alone right yeah, yeah but yeah. they were distinguishing themselves they weren't accepting any of these protections and and that's why they didn't fit into the, any of the categories rome would allow and so that was it they were then going to be correct persecuted. even in the book in the epistle of galatians for instance there was this whole problem of, of whole challenge of the uh um of the Judaizers and circumcision or no circumcision. Mm -hmm. Paul said mm -hmm. specifically the reason why you're doing this is because they don't want to be persecuted by the cross right. of Christ. So right. that's the reason. Like they wanted to, like, yeah, like this, all this stuff, but we don't want to be persecuted. Like that's just like a cop out. And Paul was like, no, all the, all the way or not. And um, another thing that comes to the question, uh, I heard uh, Jay Warren Wallace talk about this one. And uh, one thing that he, for instance, mentioned, of course, like when Christ would come right now in this day and age, people say, like, yeah, the CGI or like there, there's so much noise. Like Michael Jackson dies, it lives on the social media for two or three days. And it's just like um, a, a very nasty way of saying it. But human beings are like a fart in the wind, like especially in this day. And it just doesn't matter. But one thing Jay Warner Walls, for instance, mentioned was that the moment when Christ came, 
there were before there was like 200 years of peace under the Roman Empire called the Pax Romana. And in that particular moment, all the money, all the tax money that came in, went into the roads. And these roads were used by Paul in order mm. to, that's mm. also a particular function, which God, of course, in his omniscience has taken mm-hmm. into account for a reason to come. But also the, 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 the thing that you said that um, the sacrificial system came until the end upon the, until the moment of Christ, that just hit, hit, hit home to me. Mm. I would say I never thought of that one in particular. Um, my next question why are the acts of the apostles and letters of the apostle Paul so significant? Well, I often talk about the evidential importance of acts for Christianity. We were just talking about that context of persecution. When Bart Ehrman debated my husband, Tim, on uh, the radio unbelievable show, they weren't physically present, but it was a radio show. Um, You know, Bart said, well, it's not like they were out on the street corners proclaiming that this was true. And Tim's like, uh, yeah, actually, they were out on the street corners proclaiming that this was true and therefore thereby inviting persecution. So when people talk about Christian persecution, I'm inclined to go back to the book of Acts even more than to talk about the Neronian persecution, which I believe did result in the death of the Apostle Paul. But some of the people dying in the Neronian persecution would have been what we might call second generation Christians. Like they heard it from the apostles, they didn't personally know Jesus. Uh, people who were you know, not born yet, for example, when Jesus was on earth and that kind of thing. But in Acts, we find the first generation Christians, what were they teaching? What were they saying? And so evidentially it's very important because it shows A, their message, They were teaching the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead and B, the persecution that they had a reason to expect. And that was the original apostles, those, uh, the 11 and then Matthias whom they put in place. And then Jesus' brother, James, who became so prominent. Um, These guys who were the real deal, who had really seen it for themselves, what were they facing? You gotta read Acts for that. So Acts is really important for those reasons. the epistles of Paul are important, of course, for doctrine, right? I mean, we learn all this stuff. He's spelling out that Christology at so much length. Um, and also, I would say they do confirm acts. So William Paley has this wonderful book called The Horai Paul and I that was a huge influence on my Hidden in Plain View. Yeah, correct. That you yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's for free. I mean, you can find that free, by the way, online, uh, The Horai Paul and I. Uh, it's, you know, because it's, it's not in copyright because it was from the 1700s, you know, and the editions are all from the 1800s. And uh, he is he uses the epistles and the acts to mutually uh, illuminate each other. And so sometimes he uses acts to argue for the genuineness of the epistles. Like this was really written by Paul, but at other times he'll also use the epistles to show the accuracy of Acts, and it goes both ways. It's, it's yep, like the travel routes of uh, of Paul the and journeys Acts. Mm-hmm. and the chronology of Paul's journeys. I love to say I can place. Um, let's see if I can name them all: First and Second Corinthians, Romans, Galatians. Um, what other one? Oh, First and Second Thessalonians in the book of Acts, often to the verse, like it was here at this point in Acts that Paul wrote this epistle. Correct, even yeah. Though, even though Acts never mentions any epistle. Like Luke never mentions that Paul wrote an epistle. 
He never says, and he was writing at this time, or he was concerned about the Corinthians because of their yeah, Then on. he wrote his epistle, never mentioned And then he it. wrote his epistle. It's not in there. Mm. And yet they fit together so beautifully that you can figure out where in Acts he must have written all of those epistles. Yeah. Oof. Shivers. So, yeah, there, if you read uh, Acts, of course, and we also mentioned before, uh, like a half hour ago, like uh, the the Paul of Acts is also the Paul of the epistles. Right. Like, right. idiosyncratic character. character is always there, but also like um, the, the the map I just showed you, for instance, from like where he went and all the, the epistles that he wrote, but also like the people that are mentioned, the historical people or the places, or just as the same way as the... Um, of, as the gospels access actually if it comes to historicity you cannot you cannot it's overwhelming it's overwhelming there a book i strongly recommend this one unfortunately it's not free in fact it's rather pricey but is the book of acts in the setting of hellenistic history by colin hemer it's just an amazing i have had my faith so strengthened by uh reading you know page after page after page of little incidental confirmations. And if, if the Lord uh, spares me and gives me strength, after I finish a, a popular level book I want to write on the Gospels, I would like to do a popular level book on Acts, where I take some of that stuff that's so scholarly and maybe seems a little bit dusty or esoteric in Hemer, and I try to bring it to a level that is is very accessible, that can be used in the church. So, Yeah, God, God's willing that's... Uh... Yeah, he fills you up with health and, and, and vigor in order to do what you love and which we also love. So God willing, thank you for every thank you for the zealousness. Like uh yeah, so much appreciation. Um my last question. Um, what would be epistemologically speaking the best way to read the New Testament? So I'm gonna use this phrase, I'm gonna say use common sense. And if you subscribe to my YouTube channel, my, my motto, my YouTube channel is making common sense rigorous. So you're taking common sense, but I'm trying to give it a rigorous edge using my knowledge as an epistemologist. So um, use common sense. Don't uh, treat the complex hypotheses as preferable. So for example, oh, you know, maybe he made up that green grass thing in Mark in order to allude to um, he leads me, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, you know, what's the, the, the verse about green pastures, you know, he leads me in green pastures. I'm not kidding you, I am not making that up. Actually, uh, uh, there was an actual New Testament scholar who hypothesized that, that Mark put that in there to allude to Psalm 23. All right, like that's preferring the more complicated hypothesis over the simpler hypothesis, common sense, he said the grass was green because the grass was green. You know, <laughs> newsflash. Okay, so that that's this way to to approach it to take those prima facie simple common sense views and give them a fair hearing, and to and to treat them as prima facie on the face of it probably true, unless there's some burden of proof that's met that it wasn't that way. You know, at least that's where the, the burden of proof lies is on the person who denies that common sense historicity, not on the person who affirms it. And I would also say, do not assume that if a view is conservative, quote unquote, it must be foolish or naive 
or um, uninformed, okay? There, it is possible to hold very, very conservative views about the New Testament on the basis of evidence, strong historical objective evidence, not just, oh, I have faith and this is what it means to me and this is my presupposition or whatever, but actually that the evidence actually does support those conservative views. And that's that's part of what I'm trying to do in, in all of my work and my YouTube channel and everything. Uh, there are very few things that it get me so angry is when someone will say something to me to the effect, well, you know, I know you're disturbed by these other views, or I know that these these bother you because of your presuppositions about the Bible and the inspiration, you know, like they're trying to put me in that box, right? That box of this, you know, simplistic, simple-minded, uh, conservative, maybe even an inerrantist. Some people think I'm an inerrantist. They don't know that I'm not. And I, I don't fit in that box, you know? And so when I take these positions, it's because I'm convinced by evidence, yeah. uh, not because I as assumed it going in. And so I, I would suggest to people very strongly that they open their minds up to that possibility that the, the conservative views are actually yeah. supported by evidence. I was exactly in that particular position where in my life, where uh, I was thinking like, uh, like the, 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 the moment in my life where it really went down here was this documentary called Zeitgeist. I don't know if you ever heard of it, which was like yes. parallel. Oh, so like, I really f felt flat for it. Like I was like 15, mm. 16 years old. I was I really thought at the age of 15, 16, I figured it all out. Like, uh, like family of mine who were, who are still like, very religious in a, in a very healthy way i was i was so the, the spiritual prelest inside of me thinking like oh the story of jesus was from the egyptians and the parallelomania like the yeah yeah yeah, yeah. stuff i really want to whack myself how could i have thought that and show yourself a video have you seen the horace spoils christmas video made by um Oh, it's a Lutheran satire. Look it up. You can Google it. Lutheran satire, Horace spoils Christmas. And so there's this Lutheran, I won't try to reproduce it, but there's a Lutheran pastor and Horace appears to him and says, oh, don't believe Christmas. Christmas was borrowed from He's doing all this zeitgeist yeah. stuff. And it's very funny, but but that's what you should have shown to your 16-year-old son. Yeah, yeah. So. Point being is I really thought that like, like – I really had uh, a lot of veneration for Christianity. I read, like, of course, tradition. I was a nominal Christian. Like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church. They have Mohammed, uh, the mosque, and I have church, etc. But I really just couldn't place the uh, the logical reason why it came to be. What's the, what's this whole thing about Christ? Was he having such a wisdom that like people were persecuting Christians today? Like, I couldn't just put it in its place and. Uh, all of a sudden, like Jordan Peterson came along, you know, and oh, like he, he has become a Christian very lately. But uh, when I was like 20, 21, 22 years old, he just whacked certain beliefs inside of me, which I was able to to digest the Bible a, a lot more in a sophisticated way. And instead of like saying I was a Christian, I was like really getting into it. And um and the interesting thing i think about peterson is that he has not yet figured out that christianity is founded on objective fact he's still trying uh it's like he's got a split 
You know, he's got this personality side that wants to believe it's true, right? Mm -hmm. But then he's got the, he's the man of science over here who believes that it's not really well uh, grounded epistemologically. And he really needs somebody to come along and say to him, no, 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 it, it is. Like you can connect the literal historical truth that Jesus died and rose again from the dead yeah. with evidence. You don't have to, you don't have to uh, avoid evidence. You don't have to make a leap, like a leap of faith, like an irrational leap in order to be a Christian. And I don't think that, that he has uh, realized that, you know, and hopefully God will, will lead someone to him who will show him that. You know? Sure. Yeah. That, that's the whole thing. I, in this day and age, God has blessed us with the internet. So is there a particular, like we as empirical with empiricist data, like with the sense that we have, we only have such knowledge. We, we do know there is this edge called faith that beyond that we don't know, which is like all that's God's territory. But if it comes to our faith, it does, it isn't a negation of facts. And the thing with Peterson, for instance, is, is that when, the, when, for instance, when he is at the Joe Rogan podcast, like, did you believe that Christ was risen from the dead? He's like, his answer is, there's a lot about reality that we don't know. The mm-hmm. same question we asked it to Richard Dawkins, like one of the most embittered atheists there is right now. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, of course not. Okay, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. The distinction between those two persons that Peterson is very personally uh, integrated, like he really yeah, yeah, wants yeah. to speak truthful. And right, right, right. he also said very recently, like, I'm really amazed that the fact that I believe it, and he calls it too good to be true. Like I, rem- right. I recall a, um, an interview between him and Gary Habermas, and Gary Habermas, of course, one of the most prolific Christian mm-hmm. apologist mm-hmm. scholars that there actually are. Hopefully, one day, uh, God willing, I have also on this podcast. He was really trying to poke at Peterson, like mm. resurrection, resurrection. Why don't you believe in it? And he was just like not necessarily docking the question, but he was uh, the, the metaphysical part was his stumbling block. Yes, yes, yes. He's And, you know, I often say Christianity connects the prose and the passion, right? And so as Christians, that's what we have to do, always connect the prose and the passion. And, you know, Peterson's got the prose and he's got the passion. He just hasn't put them together yet. And that's what that's what Christianity does for us. It allows us to connect the prose and the passion. Yeah, he, the way I was, how I see it actually is that uh, he helped me to become a Christian, but it feels like it's, it sounds very arrogant, but I already leaped over him. I oh, got yeah, like, well, because you're a Christian. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's not re- he's not really a Christian. You know, he's not. He's, he's Christian but, friendly, Christian adjacent, whatever word you want to use, you yeah. know, uh, wants Christianity to be true, but he's not a Christian. You know, it's, you've got to really, you've got to yeah. really have that clear you yeah, know that's that clear that's belief true. and then and then say and and then confess your sins you know if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the lord jesus believe in thy heart that god has raised him from the dead thou shalt be saved you know and i don't yeah. think he's come to that point yet you know what he said is one of his last podcasts he says that it's very terrifying like right. the, the word if it comes to like if christianity is true that means that christ has dominion over all of us like he's he's not that hippie anymore. He's not like uh, asking thou shall receive. Yeah, he is also the particular part. But you do need to realize that the judge. He is the judge. Like that's yeah. the terrifying yeah. part. And he well, and it. here's the other thing about Peterson. I I believe that now I I haven't studied him as much as you have, and I I have a close friend who's studied him hugely more than I have. But it seems to me that he is a man of the law 
and that if he is brought to Christ fully, it will be like the Apostle Paul said, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Okay, so that Peterson believes you have to pay for your sins. You have to pay. You have to you have to take up your burden to pick up your own damn cross, you know? Okay, right? And Jesus says, you know, come to me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, you can't pay. You cannot pay. I paid. Right? And so what he has to he has to understand is the gospel, the good news, which says, you're right. It is terrifying if there is a God, if there is a judge, you know, you're you're in big trouble you're in big but guess what but guess what jesus died jesus died so now you're not in big trouble you have to receive that gift you have to have the humility to say no okay i can't pay i can't carry my own cross i can't pay for my own sin i have to accept that jesus died for my sin jesus paid and i think that he that's where he hasn't understood that yet so he's still at the terror terrified part you know and he needs to get to the gospel part yeah, it's a solid, so such a good point. Amen to that. Amen. Yeah, it's such a very fruitful session. Now, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah. Um, one, one thing that, uh, like one of my uh, Dutch apologetical contemporaries, one, one thing he, for instance, mentions is like, if it comes to this stuff, like textual criticism and, and mm-hmm. this type of things, like if you would... Um, have like a 10,000 year old version of the Donald Duck, for instance, like perfectly preserved, but still that doesn't necessarily say truthful things about all of creation, mm-hmm. for instance. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, how is your view actually on uh, this doctrine called sola scriptura? This is not one of the questions, but I really am, uh, would like to know what's your view on the Bible? Do you see it as... Of course, the, the, if, if we as Christians believe in objective truth, we mm-hmm. believe that in, in the revelation of God he has given us. But do you see the Bible as something that we need? We can uh, anchor ourselves in and use it as a lens to read the world? Or do you see actually like the Bible and nothing else? What's your view? So solo scripture can mean a lot of things. And I would take it to be um, that every... I believe one definition that's given is that everything necessary for salvation is contained in yeah. scripture, right? But that doesn't mean it's going to address every topic. I think what we need to have is a worldview. Okay. I mean, the, just to pick something, you know, the Bible never says, uh, you know, don't burn people with cigarettes, you know, like there's, there's just topics that it doesn't address, right? Directly. But the Christian worldview obviously means that you should not burn people with cigarettes, right? Okay, so um, <laughs> I mean, I'm just like picking something that when you try to look for the, God, the Bible to address every topic, then that, that's not gonna work. And what we need to do is we need to develop a Christian worldview. And then that's gonna allow us to address topics that scripture does not address. And it's gonna allow us to integrate general revelation with special revelation. And so I have a pretty robust notion of general revelation. And that's part of why I hold um, people to be responsible for violating general revelation, even if they are not Christians. So I I think, for example, that abortionists know that they are killing a living human being and that they are committing murder and what they're doing is wrong. I don't care if that abortionist is an atheist and doesn't believe scripture. I think he knows what he's doing is wrong. Mm -hmm. So how does he know that? Well, the Apostle Paul says the law written on their heart 
right? And so in a sense, scripture teaches us that we have knowledge of right and wrong that's not in scripture. Romans 1 teaches us that. He says the Gentiles without the law do the things of the law, do the things according to the law because of the law that is written in their heart. So I think scripture itself shows us that uh, sola scriptura does not mean that we have no knowledge outside of scripture, but we have to integrate it so that we can have an integrated mind and integrated worldview. Great answer, great answer. That's exactly how I look at it. Yeah, yeah. I really do, do believe the fact that all truth is from God. And in the same way, like in Acts 17, when, no, first off, like in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, for instance, Paul says uh, to the Jew, I am a Jew, to the Greek, I am a mm. Greek, etc. He doesn't say he aspires something. He's like, right. understand their worldview. And um, in Acts 17, for instance, when Paul is in Athens, He's using their Stoic philosophers, Epimenides and Aratus, like that mm-hmm. uh, the God that they, in their uh, general revelation, in their hearts, they right. already knew that there actually was. The ignorance. The yeah. God that you in ignorance yeah. worship. That's, that is he. He yeah. is that the, Christ is the person that we are alluding to. And so, yet he's not afraid to, um, you know, offend them. Like when he talks about the resurrection, they're like, oh, brother, the resurrection. You know, he doesn't mind, you know, going beyond that. To, to other things. So he's got, you know, he's always proclaiming the gospel, but he's starting out with a hook. You know, he's got a little hook that's yeah. gonna, gonna bring them and catch, catch their attention. So Yeah, yeah. I, I do believe that all wisdom is from God in and of, of himself, like already alluded to Luke 21, 15. Like, I will give you, don't premeditate what you're going to say. I will give you words of wisdom to refute everyone. So I do believe that uh, non-biblical books, for instance, do help the fact of what the Bible says. Like I have like this book called from uh, Cornelius Van Til. Uh, he is a uh, Christian apologetics, which he, he is like one of the founders of presuppositional apologetics. Like yeah. in other words, like reasoning in a circle in a rational biblical way. And that's the Well, they thing. would be offended if you said that, but I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. But that's so. the whole thing. Like one of the discussions is with someone who was a scholar who came out of a hyper-Calvinistic environment who studied theology for four years, but he did say, I'm not a Christian, I don't like it, because the claims that you make are so drastic, like these are objective truth claims. And uh, that's something I do not, I, th- I, th- I think it's very like prelest or arrogant to say, like, this hmm. is the truth. So oh, no, 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 no. Everybody, uh, if you don't believe something's the truth, then why act on it, you know? Um, you got to have objective truth, even in even in a secular worldview. So, yeah. well, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Absolutely, a great conversation. Yeah, yeah. This is something that we we watch uh, a dozen times more, guys. Uh, yet again, I don't unfortunately not yet have her, her third book, but uh, hidden in plain view in the eye of the beholder. All of them are meat facts. All of them have have solid arguments in it. Uh, Mrs. McGrew, I want to yet again thank you so much. I wish you nothing but the very best. I wish you all the health. Thank you. May the Lord grant you everything that your that your heart wants, and may we all be in His will and walk with Him. Um, thank you. God bless you. God bless you and your family. God bless you too. Thank you, Vartan. Thank you.